Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director of the Madison Center. And today we're doing a podcast on global migration and refugees and talking with Dr. Dia Abdo, who will be the new Executive Director of the Center for New North Carolinians at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. I have with me in studio two JMU colleagues, Dr. Jamie Williams, Associate Director at Community Service Learning, and Nadia Haidari, a rising junior majoring in political science and economics. Thanks so much for joining me today, everyone. Thank you for having us. Thank you. you. Wonderful to be here. Dr. Abdo, I wonder if you can start off by talking a little bit about the global migration and refugee crisis. Uh, We have nearly 71 million people who have fled their homes worldwide, which is the highest number since World War II. And according to the UN, a person is forced to leave home every two seconds. Can you talk a little bit about the root causes of this crisis? So there are many, many reasons why people are forcibly leaving their homes, why they migrate, why they're displaced. Um, It's important to differentiate between various groups of displaced individuals. So there are individuals who are internally displaced, um, and there are millions and millions of those. Um, Those are folks who can no longer stay in their towns, in their cities, in their villages, because they are are under threat of violence and um, brutality. Um, They might also be internally displaced because economic opportunities um, are no longer available where they are and they need to provide for for themselves and for their families. And so they move elsewhere in their country. Um, But there are many, many millions of individuals who are forced to flee their own country and therefore become displaced um, into other countries, um, mostly countries nearby, neighboring countries. Um, The the reasons for these displacements, as I've said, um, are particularly um, um, political conflict um, and war, as we see, for example, in Syria um, and in Africa. We see economic um, displacement um, in South America, but we also see um, displacement in South America, for example, because of um, um, other, not necessarily collective conflicts or wars, but dirty wars um, or um, smaller conflicts because of um, uh, drugs and other other issues that, that cause particular groups of people um, to fear for their lives and need to flee. Um, the UN designates refugees as um, individuals who are fleeing persecution due to very specific reasons, um, their race, their nationality, their ethnicity, their religion, and because they be- belong to particular social or um, political groups. Um, those individuals when they flee their country um, and enter a nearby um, country, let's say from Syria to Jordan or from Syria to Turkey, um, they remain in urban camps or are warehoused. We call them warehouse refugee camps. Um, And the vetting process is long and exhaustive for them to be designated as refugees that are um, eligible for resettlement in a third country if they wish to resettle um, return to one con- one's country after conflict like that is um, very difficult, if not impossible. Um, there are many people who leave who might fit these categories, but it's much harder for them to prove um, why 
they um, should be designated as refugees, for example, asylum seekers. Um, but um, I guess the answer, the short answer to that question is that um, there are lots of reasons why people leave, um, and many of them have to do with direct threats to themselves and their families, either because of physical um, physical threat, physical conflict, um, physical violence, or because life in that place is no longer economically sustainable. So environmental disasters, economic disasters, force people out to seek life elsewhere. Dr. Abdu, would you be able to talk about how public policies exasperated the crisis? So if by the crisis we mean the fact that there are so many people, um, 71 million human beings who are now essentially homeless, right? They're living, um, as we said, in urban camps, um, but barely making it because they are considered second, third, or fourth class citizens, or they're living in large warehouse refugee camps in tents, uh, in shanty towns. Um, the public policies that exacerbate the continuation of this kind of dis displacement where people are no longer able to integrate, to um, belong to <clears throat> safe um, countries and safe cities and safe, safe towns is because many of those countries have um, their own policies about who to let in and who not to let in. Um, so, you know, the global compact on, on migration um, where countries are deciding how many refugees they should take in. For example, the U.S. resettles um, a very um, small number of, of refugees, but in terms of resettlement, which is third country resettlement, um, it's actually um, sort of one of the, 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 the largest countries that do third, third resettlement or third country resettlement for refugees. Um, many refugees end up in their second port of call, the second country. Um, and they stay in that state in limbo, sometimes for generations. So many refugees in African countries, in um, Arab countries, um, Palestinian refugees who left in 1948 and 1967 still uh, languish in refugee camps in um, Syria and Lebanon um, without any rights, right to work or right to education, uh, without any documentation to be able to leave. And now, of course, Palestinians in Syria have become refugees yet again. Um, and so the public policies are really just um, the ways in which countries have decided um, that they will support humans who are um, so terribly displaced. Um, Jordan, for example, has taken on um, millions of um refugees over the years um, from Palestine, from Iraq, from Syria, um, and has allowed them to slowly integrate over time. But for a small country um, with very limited resources, um, it's unreasonable to expect um, such a country to be able to sh shoulder this incredible burden. Um, so I think that, that really the public policies come down to countries' ability to countries' abilities to share their resources and to combat xenophobia within their own demographics. Um, and so I would say the, the, the policies regarding um, acceptance of outsiders um, and sharing countries' resources are some of the big, biggest reasons 
why this crisis is exacerbated and why there are so many people who are still unable to resettle. Dia, what are the realities and daily lived experiences for migrants and refugees? Again, there are many millions of individuals who can be labeled as migrants and refugees, and their experiences are as unique as there are migrants and refugees. So individuals who are migrating on foot with children or without children sometimes have to travel for days in adverse conditions, whether social or environmental. Um, We've heard of families who have um, died because of the cold in the night. They froze to death, right? So migrants are usually traveling on foot, um, which is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous, um, again, because of the the elements. Um, We know of the hundreds and hundreds of people who have um, died en route either in the oceans or the seas or, um, you know, in capsized boats and rafts who have drowned. Um, Of the many individuals who have suffocated in cargo holds being um, carried in, um, you know, across the desert Um, We know that many migrants and refugees are at the mercy of smugglers, coyotes, um, who who they have to pay perhaps their last cent, their last um, savings to be able to make it safely. um, And sometimes, obviously, many times don't make it safely. Um, So migrants and refugees in their journey um, are at the mercy of um, the cruelty of the elements. the environment and the human beings um, on on their route to to safety. Of course, before they leave, migrants and refugees are facing a cruel reality of conflict, of poverty, of war, of constant threat um, to their their livelihoods and their physical lives. Um, And so there's a moment, there's the initial rupture, the initial um, violence, the initial pain, Um, after that, of course, is the pain of the journey itself, the danger of the journey itself. And then let's say you arrive somewhere, whether it's another town, another city, maybe you cross the border into another country. Um, there's the lived reality of that, of the displacement of being in another place where you are at the mercy of the people in that place and the, and the governments of that place. So you might live in the raw, in the open around, um, you know, a a makeshift fire, then that might morph into a tent, and then that might morph into zinc-roofed rooms that can sometimes last for decades. Um, Essentially, the the lives of migrants and refugees, for me, I think it's a journey from extreme danger through extreme danger, um, and you sort of end in marginalization and on the peripheries, right, On, on the margins of countries, on the margins of lives on the margins of spaces. Um, And in the periphery, um, you are dehumanized. You are uh, considered someone who, you know, if if there's something left over, you might get that. Um, And again, you sort of might be left there in oblivion for decades. Um, And if you're lucky, maybe the conflict in your country is resolved and you might go back to what we don't know, to destroyed homes and destroyed villages attempting to rebuild. 
Um, and then for the very, very few, maybe third country resettlement. So you end up maybe in Germany or in Australia or in Canada or in the U.S. Um, battling xenophobia, language barriers, cultural barriers, um, homesickness, um, a, a lack of belonging to make a life for your children. We can certainly define the global migration crisis um, and the refugee crisis a wicked problem. One of the things that is unique about what you've done is you've tried to address this at a local issue. You know, as you're as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking about this problem seems so far away, so distant, right? What can we do about it? And you've you've done something about it. You created with your students every campus a refuge. And that seeks to re-envision campuses as being a place of safe refuge, especially in times of crisis. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the project and why, why does the mission and, and ethos of, of colleges and universities make this a wicked problem that we should address? I'm going to come at this answer in a variety of ways. Um, so to go back to the, the lived realities of migrants and refugees, again, when migrants and refugees, let's say, cross a border, um, even if they're living in cities, um, but more, more likely they're living in these huge camps like a Zatari, let's say. Um, they're being um, placed in the periphery. They, they have not become part of our community, nor are they considered integral aspects of the cityscape. Um, I think what every campus, a refuge does is that it thinks of cities, maybe if not countries, I like to think of, of, of cities as doing the important work of, of acceptance and hospitality because it's harder at the, at the country level to do that. Um, but cities, they're smaller, um, they are completely well-equipped and their ethos is perhaps more collective, um, more bonded, um, and I, I tend to think of cities as sort of more, more sometimes more liberal places, more, even more radical places than their governments and their countries. We certainly see that in Greensboro, um, which is a, a, you know, a, a sanctuary city, a welcoming city. Um, so every campus or refuge is really about creating um, an ethos of a city that accepts its, its, its responsibility, accepts its accountability to others, and shares its resources. Fundamentally, that's what, it's, what is at the heart of every campus or refuge. That, um, and, and I don't know if you know, but every campus or refuge was inspired by the Pope's call in 2015 after that image of Aylan Kurdi circulated, the little boy who drowned, the Syrian boy who drowned, um, he called on every parish in Europe, every small town, every small city to host a refugee family. Um, and so instead of shunning refugees and migrants to the periphery, right at the edge of the desert, at the edge of the country, right at the border, where there are no resources, no doctors, no running water, no food, no, no way for people to make a life, to create their own economies, um, constantly peripheral marginalized, constantly on the periphery. Um, the idea is to bring them into the fold, 
so that they are part of the city, so that we can share our resources. So every campus of refuge is really a microcosm of that. So if you think of a city like Greensboro as a welcoming city where we can do that and resettle refugees and support their resettlement and uh, include, welcome, um, integrate, then within those cities, there are even smaller cities called university and college campuses that like cities have every human and material resource needed to do this work of integration and resettlement. We have housing, we have clinics, we have cafeterias, we have career centers. Um, but really it's about thinking in microcosm about a big problem. If the big problem is that we're constantly marginalizing human beings to the periphery, then let's create spaces where resources can be shared um, in ways that make sense. And so cities and campuses are the spaces where resources can be shared in ways that make sense um, and that are doable. Um, Dr. Abdu, you talked about how universities are smaller smaller cities uh, within, this, uh, within the cities. Could you talk more about what are the challenges to making these campuses, places of refuge, uh, at different types of institutions of higher education? I think the greatest challenge has been um, is to convince administrations. Typically, in my experience so far, it has been much easier to get buy-in from faculty and students, from academic programs, from clubs and organizations. A project like Every Campus a Refuge, which is about hospitality and integration, more often than not speaks to the ethos, the values, um, even the educational missions of many institutions, right? It's about engaging with your community. It's about sustainable practices. Um, it's about participating in the public good. Um, it's about being global citizens, right? It's, it's everything we want our students to learn and be that they can do quite a bit with their resources, with their education, with their practices, um, and that they can be fundamentally connected and tied to their communities in that process. The challenge has been um, getting administrations on board because um, there is a lot of sort of risk-averse practices in higher ed um, that want, you know, we want to think big, but not in a way that might seem risky, right? Um, and so I think the biggest challenge has been making administration or, you know, the, the president of an institution or, um, um, you know, any administrative body see that this is a valuable endeavor, not only for the community, but for the students. Um, and so making that ideological shift um, with administration has, uh, the administrations of various institutions has been the biggest challenge, that sort of, that, that leap, that ideological leap, that this is something that we do for other human beings, but it's also something that we do for the collective, including ourselves and our students. You're, you're touching on something that we are dealing with constantly across the nation in regards to institutions that are more risk adverse and concerned with what fallout there may be from even parents or community members in regards to campuses serving in this capacity. So how can individuals who want to re-envision their campuses counteract this tendency? 
I think that will depend on the campus culture itself. So every campus, every university, every college has its own set of values, its own culture that it has developed over time. And so every campus will be better able to tell what approach, what framework, what rhetoric they might be able to use to um, to, to receive buy-in or secure buy-in from their administration. So in my experience so far with campuses that have become ECAR campuses is that um, students, first of all, are incredibly powerful players um, in this project, uh, that more often than not, if students are the ones who are pushing for this, who are asking for this, then the administration will listen. Um, you might also be able to, as students, um, frame this need or frame this project um, around um, whatever strategic plan or whatever projects might be happening at your university at the time. So one particular campus um, a few years ago, um, they had a push on their campus for globalization and internationalizing. Um, and so to frame this project as a globalized, as a global project, um, sort of fell in line with what the institution was trying to do. So I would recommend that individuals who want to work on this project, whether they be students or faculty or staff, or even folks from the community, you might be connected to an institution um, because you're in the city where that institution is. You might be an alum, you might be a friend, you might be a donor, you might be a board member. Um, and so I think for those individuals is to think about their campus culture and to collaborate with other individuals on that campus who might be able to support them bring this mission to the administration in a way that aligns with the administration, with the, with the institution's goals and practices and vision for itself. Dia, you've worked with a number of colleges now on establishing uh, a chapter of Every Campus a Refuge, and including both public institutions and, and private. You've also created um, a manual of best practices. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the best practices for making a campus a refuge, and also some of the successes um, at some of the campuses that you've worked with. So in terms of best practices, I would say fundamentally what you're trying to do is provide or share your institution's resources with vulnerable communities who are in your city or in your town or in your village, because I recognize that many campuses actually could be rural, um, but you have a community around you and there might be vulnerable sectors, members, um, of your community who would benefit from the resources, the myriad and varied and incredible resources um, that a campus has to offer. It really is a small city in one, you know, in a, in a compact place. Um, so I think a best practice of every campus a refuge is to connect with those communities. Um, so if we're talking about refugee communities here specifically, um, and I don't want to I don't want to limit this to refugee communities because I do envision every campus a refuge as a as a project that is applicable to communities who need resources regardless. So these could be individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, these could be asylum seekers. These could be undocumented mixed status families. Um, we're talking about community members who would benefit um 
from share from us sharing our resources and being accountable to our community members by sharing those resources. Um, and so I think the first best practice is to connect with your community leaders, with your refugee resettlement agency, with your housing coalitions, um, to see what the need is, where is the need. So basically to start with conversations, right? We don't want to imagine that we have the answers to everything. We want our our practices to be community-led and community-directed, right? We want them to be responsive to community needs. So the first best practice is to have conversations. Have conversations with folks in the community to see what the need is. When we did that, we discovered that the need was housing because affordable and safe housing in Greensboro is incredibly rare, especially for refugees who are resettling. And so that's the first best practice. If you move in that direction, um, whatever resource it is that you want to share, maybe you discover that the, sh that the need is for food, food security, maybe it is housing, maybe it's something else. Um, what you want to do is then to create um, a model of sharing those resources that is attentive to the integrity and the agency and the privacy of the individuals that you want to support, that you want to share resources with. So our housing initiative, which is Every Campus a Refuge, um, that's responsive to housing needs along, uh, you know, along with community support needs, is very mindful of the privacy and agency and the dignity of the refugees that we host. So when we host refugees on our campus, um, we train our volunteers to be very careful not to share confidences, not to advertise where and who the refugees are. Um, and so I think the second best practice then is to centralize the voice, to centralize the agency, the dignity, the privacy of the individuals that you want to support. It's about them, right? It's not about us. It's about them. Um, and then to continue in that vein, right, that whatever you do is in response to the needs of the communities that you're supporting. If you keep if you keep those at the center, if you keep those um, at the core of what you're trying to do, um, then I think that fulfills one of the most important best practices of every campus a refuge. Um, part of our best practices um, at um, Guilford College is to also support families in their off-campus resettlement. So while families are on our campus, we support them in access to social services, to health, to health um, uh, medical appointments, um, to childcare, to ESL tutoring, to job readiness, employment. So supporting folks in achieving their goals and their needs, and then to continue to support them once they move off our campus um, by assisting them in finding their preferred housing, um, and by making sure that um, that they continue to be a part of our community, that it doesn't stop after a family moves off our campus. Um, I wonder if you can also talk about some of the challenges that you've learned from in establishing these relationships and these these partnerships and in working with refugees and also in working with administrations at colleges and universities? In terms of best practices, I'm really proud of the Wake Forest University chapter who have learned um, from a challenge that they faced. Um, so 
there were no refugees being resettled or new, no new arrivals or newcomers in Winston-Salem, which is where Wake Forest is. And so the Wake Forest chapter connected with their local refugee resettlement agency to see if there is a family that has already resettled in Winston-Salem that needs support. And so they pivoted their support to um, assist an already established or already resettled family. Um, and so that's that's a challenge that a campus has learned from, right? If if and especially this is going to be a challenge coming up. If we continue under this administration, um, the refugee admissions program might decrease so significantly that um, refugees might not be resettling around our campuses. But that doesn't mean that we should not be using, utilizing, sharing our resources, uh, because again, that I think that's the most important piece in all of this is that as institutions, as organizations that are really microcosms of cities, we are accountable and responsible. Um, and so the Wake Forest chapter pivoted that responsibility to support existing refugee communities. And that's a challenge that we can all learn from to see which members, who, which members of our community are facing the greatest challenges and needs and how can we pivot to share our resources to, um, to support them. Um, in terms of the greatest um, successes, I do wanna talk about this particular story because I think it's a fabulous illustration of how campus resources can be shared and used in ways that are holistic, that speak to and attend to the whole person. Um, I think the reality, to go back to an earlier question of the, of, of the daily lives of migrants and refugees, if they're so lucky to be part of the 1% that gets resettled in a third country, is that often they're just focusing on surviving, right? That, that the resettlement experience is one of survival. Um, very rarely is it sort of a meaningful experience where people are thriving rather than surviving. They're trying to find a job. They are asked and tasked with finding accepting the first job that they're offered. Um, they only get funds worth of three months, if that. And so the stress, the need to get a job, any job quickly um, is there. And so very often people are you're just sort of stuck in a poverty, cycle of poverty and ghettoization. And so in one particular example, we hosted a family, an Iraqi family, um, where the father uh, was a calligraphist and an artist. And uh, we partnered with the art department to provide him with free access and use of art studio and supplies. And he was able to produce work that then we partnered with the college um, gallery to exhibit his work. And then we partnered with a gallery downtown to exhibit his work. Um, but I think that this is a remarkable story because it shows you that Indeed, there is everything that you need on a campus to speak to the various passions, skills, abilities of human beings, and that those services um, can allow someone to shift their resettlement experience in ways that are much more meaningful and much more productive. Um, I think a great success is that um, at Guilford College, we've hosted almost 60 refugees on our campus. Um, they've come from countries in Africa and the Middle East, South America. They've spoken many languages, come from many different faith backgrounds. Um, so the level of diversity that we're able to, to sort of support um, in our city here in Greensboro is really, um, is really heartening. Um, I would consider that a great success. 
thank you for providing such an encompassing context for us. And so Nadia, this question is actually for you. Can you speak to what JMU's SGA has done on Every Campus a Refuge and what it plans to do? Um, yes, of course. Um, I'll go in a little bit into the how uh, Every Campus of Refuge Task Force came into um, existence within JMU. Um, it came up to the Senate of SGA um, in April of 2019 by Senator Heidi Deger, uh, who brought in the idea of uh, establishing Every Campus of Re uh, a Refuge Task Force um, on our campus. And as Dr. Abdu mentioned, we did get uh, a lot of reactions from parents, uh, senators that were voting on the uh, resolution, um, and as well as other students on campus. Uh, we had to put it for later uh, and come back to it and explain better to the students of what we are trying to do and what we are hoping to do. Uh, the resolution was passed in October of 2019 when the task, task force was established. And the purpose was to look into ways how JMU community could help out um, and engage with the refugee community in Harrisonburg. Uh, that's when we were able to get in touch with CSL, uh, which is a community service learning center at James Madison University. and. Um, We've talked about some of the things that the refugee community needs um, at Harrisonburg, um, which were transportation, child care, and uh, translation services. Um, those were the issues that were brought up to us. Um, we went ahead and talked to other organizations on campus, um, uh, trying to find different avenues that we could pursue, uh, as well as we reached out to Harrisonburg City Schools to see what they have been doing so far and what they need um, help with. And um, after much thinking, uh, we came up to a decision that translation services could be best pursued with uh, the help of a JMU uh, community. Um, so we are hoping, hoping to... Um, establish a connection with foreign language uh, department uh, and see how JMU students uh, could help out while, uh, while offering their knowledge and uh, in the process gain experience to help out the refugee community um, and also reach out to other students on campus that know other languages that might not be within the foreign uh, language department. So that's something that we're hoping to do in the coming uh, months. We're working through summer as well. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm hoping to keep that. Yeah. So just for context for listeners, Harrisonburg is a refugee resettlement community as well. Um, and there's more than 57 languages spoken in our local schools. So languages, um, language translation services are very much needed. Um, and one of the other things, we, we do have a wonderful newcomer program in our Harrisonburg City Schools, and they implement some of the best practices. Um, but we also had a student this year, Elizabeth Elia, who also works in community service learning um, and has worked with the Center for Civic Engagement. Her thesis examined newcomer education and kind of identified some needs working alongside um, administrators within Harrisonburg City Schools there. Um, so we know that there are, are lots of needs to be filled and, and and ways in which JMU can can continue to 
contribute working alongside some of our community partners, um, including Church World Services, um, who does really important work, um, both with high school students and with refugee families in in this work. Um, Nadia, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, uh, uh, how students can get involved this year, what what, what ideas, um, how can they get engaged with you um, and, and with this project? Um, the big misconception that I have came across is that since the task force was established by student government, a lot of students are hesitant to get involved since um, they think it's only open to senators and representatives within the student government association. Uh, but we're um, open to all of the students, to all of the JMU students to um, get in touch with us and to help us out and get engaged with uh, this uh, amazing initiative that we are trying to push. Um, the best way as of right now during the COVID-19, uh, I would say emailing uh, SGA um, or getting in touch through any of the social media that SGA has, and they would be able to um, connect you with uh, me and anyone else who's working on the task force. Jamie, you worked with JMU's administration with with a local nonprofit, Open Doors, and with the city of Harrisonburg to open JMU's doors to those experiencing homelessness during the COVID-19 crisis. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that process, especially given that it was the first time JMU became a place of refuge. Sure. Uh, First, I want to reinforce how collective of a process this has been and that it was really driven by community stakeholders focused on advocating on behalf of and providing resources for folks that are unsheltered. Representatives like Shannon Porter with Mercy House, Sam Nichols and Eric Olson-Getty with Our Community Place and Graham Witt with Open Doors have been working diligently with city administrators for some time to provide more comprehensive, cohesive and sustained services to folks in the community facing housing insecurity homelessness at large. Fortunately, JMU has been able to strengthen our relationships with such amazing community partners and build a rapport that really facilitated a level of openness and mutual respect to engage in productive dialogue about the goals and assets of collaborators and to find a way to work together. So after JMU was approached, we were able to progress this opportunity to upper administrators that were committed to seeing this happen uh, as the community stakeholders saw fit. So that's a really important point that was reinforced multiple times throughout this conversation thus far, is that it was really community-led and based on what the community stakeholders saw as being the best fit. So within about a week's time, there were numerous phone calls, emails that led to a tour of some spaces uh, on JMU's campus to figure out what spaces would be most conducive to serving in this capacity. And then there was a memorandum of agreement between JMU, Open Doors, and city administrators. And, And then the doors opened, just as one <laughs> would think, on, on a following Monday. So it was just about a week's time that it all progressed very swiftly uh, and wonderfully. Jamie, can you talk about how the crisis made it possible to become a refugee? Yes. So when the highest level of administrators are community-minded and committed to stepping into a role of an anchor institution, this work becomes exponentially more feasible. So that's definitely something that's worth noting. Uh, But like many other institutions of higher education across the country and really the globe, the COVID-19 pandemic led to JMU closing its campus 
which made spaces that are typically unavailable, more available and more accessible uh, and allowed us as an institution to participate in this effort with more resources than we usually have readily available. It's also worth noting that when something like this crisis impacts all of us, we as a society become even more aware of disparities in, in equity and see some clearer paths to work collectively to address those disparities. Ultimately, having the crisis made it seem unjust to an already community-minded institution to not host open doors. So as an institution, our administrators and stakeholders across campus anticipated how this would be received by various audiences. We've talked about NIMBYism in a, a few different contexts, and we as an institution were intentional about how we wanted to communicate our partnership and really acknowledge that it was our duty to step up into this role. So the community felt the crisis, we had unthreatening spaces that were available, and we had the resounding belief that it was the right thing to do. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you learned from the process and how it's going to inform the work of community service learning, Nadia, maybe even SGA, how, how we can learn from that um, in the Student Government Association, and also how it can inform our work here at the Madison Center and other partners across James Madison University. Yeah, so an important takeaway from this process is how vital it is to have identifiable points of access to anchor institutions in the community. So that's not specific to James Madison University, but in, at large, uh, if JMU didn't have clear pathways to be approached, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, we often hear some of this context of the, the push-pull type of dynamic with institutions of higher education that when a university or a college wants to do something, they may push themselves onto the community, but when the community wants to do something, they can't necessarily pull from the university or college. And so that is an important takeaway, is that these points of access are integral to any type of community-led endeavor. And that's another part of it, is that we need to be responsive, as was mentioned earlier throughout this podcast, and we need to be willing to be led by the community. Another element is the importance of explorative dialogue. So we've had other asks of the university that weren't able to be accommodated. And sometimes when there is a no to a uh, question that's asked by the community, that can be disheartening and lead to doors shutting and folks feeling as though they can't approach anybody in the future with ideas. So from all parties involved, having this openness to, to engage in ongoing conversation and dialogue and not just assume that if one idea or one question that's asked is just not able to happen, that it's shut down for future conversations. Instead, coming to the table and really talking about, okay, so this may not be the most feasible, but where can this bend or how can we possibly adapt in a way that it becomes more feasible? And really recognizing that it, it has to be able to evolve beyond just a yes, no type of response. And even thinking about the work as uh, community service learning is doing with community partners and organizations, we talk with them often about when they have an idea, even if it's not for fully formulated, uh, to still express that idea uh, so we can try to figure that out collaboratively. But it does help to try to think through and anticipate some of the questions that may be asked of higher administrators and folks in decision-making positions so that as the barriers or challenges start to arise, folks can already anticipate from the community side what those might look like. And so we've, as community service learning, really tried to uh, be facilitators in that 
that space a little bit more and pose some of those questions that we anticipate to help prepare our community partners to lead in a stronger capacity that is more likely to yield successful uh, partnerships. Nadia, do you want to address anything about from SGA's perspective about, about learning from campus becoming a refuge during crisis? Um, while going through this process of getting the task force started and pushing it forward, um, it, I could definitely see what Jamie's talking about and uh, feeling like you're coming to a stop after every single time asking um, a, a different organization to uh, maybe take a part in the initiative. And there are a lot of red tapes, uh, but that shouldn't stop someone from seeking other avenues and looking into uh, knocking into other doors and trying to figure out something else uh, because there's always another door that might be open to someone um, so yeah, yeah. so much for joining us. Um, Dia Abdu, we have one last question that we ask of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Um, I think every campus of refuge actually is, is a way to do that. Um, and allow me to explain. I think for me, democracy means full participation. It means full access. Right? It means that individuals um, can be fully a part of systems. And since we have systems that are racist, <laughs> that are oppressive. In other words, that oppression and, and racism are structural. Um, that the focus to strengthen the democracy should be on dismantling structures and systems that keep people out. Um, that ensure that people don't get the education that they sh that they should get. Don't have access to the kind of health. Um, services, social services, housing services that they need um, to thrive um, and to be full participating members. Um, and so a way to address this lack of access is to increase access wherever we can in our shared spaces and our shared resources while simultaneously advocating for the dismantling of exclusive structures and exclusive spaces and exclusive systems that continue to marginalize and oppress individuals. Um, and so every campus of refuge is really fundamentally about sharing. It's about accountability. It's about responsibility. It's about making sure that folks who come into this country um, really set up to fail, right? With very little access to funds, to housing security, to safety, to language, um, to employment and then expecting them to become participating, fully participating members in our community. How, how's that supposed to work? Um, and so finding ways in which we can um, pivot whatever, in, whatever organizations, structures, institutions we find ourselves in to increase access to those resources so that we can ensure fuller participation um, and fuller access to individuals, um, I think, is, is a key to strengthening democracy. Thank you all so much for this really important and timely conversation. Thank you again for having us. Thank you.
Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.